I've treated hundreds of patients and trained thousands of healthcare professionals over my 15-year career. And one thing I've learned through that experience is that most people are really confused about supplements, or they lack a clear strategy or plan for how to use supplements to improve their health. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line designed to add back in what the modern world has squeezed out and help you feel and perform your best. Our ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients we need for optimal function. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. I formulated Adapt Naturals using the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research to fill the nutrient gaps that we face today and replicate the nutrient intakes found in an optimal ancestral diet. Our flagship offering is called the Core Plus Bundle, a daily stack of five products that gives you everything you need each day, from essential vitamins and minerals like B12, folate, magnesium, and vitamin D, to phytonutrients like bioflavonoids, carotenoids, and beta-glucans. You can also order the products in the bundle separately if that works better for your needs. The Adapt Naturals products are made from the highest quality, food-based, or bioidentical ingredients, from cellular and immune health to brain and nervous system support to blood sugar and heart health, we've got you covered. Your supplement cupboard is about to get a lot smaller. We also created an app called Core Reset to help you get your nutrition, sleep, movement, and stress management dialed in. Because no matter how good our supplements are, and they are really good, you can't supplement yourself out of a bad diet and lifestyle. The best part is that you get this app at no additional cost when you order the Core Plus bundle. Head over to adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T naturals.com, to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. Hey everybody, Chris Kresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you've probably heard me talk about the gut-brain axis, which is the bi-directional connection between the gut and the brain, where what happens in the gut affects the brain and what happens in the brain and the nervous system directly affects the gut, which is actually part of the nervous system in the modern way of looking at it. So I am really excited to welcome Dr. Will Cole as my guest on this show because he has written a book on this topic called Gut Feelings, which explores this connection in great detail. And I think it's a very important topic for our time because almost everyone that I know either personally or that I've treated as a patient, students in my training programs, et cetera, is dealing with some level of nervous system dysregulation, whether that's chronic stress, anxiety, depression, sleep deprivation, or just the impact of living in our busy, modern, industrialized world. And I would also say that the vast majority of people that I've worked with have some level of gut dysfunction. It may not be a serious condition, but you know, might be some um, dysbiosis or disruption of the gut microbiome, uh, just the gut not functioning as smoothly as it could be. And turns out there's a very clear explanation for this connection and research over the past you know, 20 to 30 years has shed a lot of light on what drives this gut-brain axis dysfunction and most important, what we can do about it. There are a lot of simple and practical steps that we can take to improve the function of the gut-brain axis and improve our health and extend our health span. And Dr. Cole has written an amazing book with lots of actionable advice and insight. Uh, he approaches the topic with a lot of heart, and I really appreciate that about him. It's not too reductionist, uh, you know, which some of these, you know, sometimes discussions about the gut brain axis can be. There's a lot of discussion about how our uh, relationship with ourselves and others and our connection with nature and the world around us contribute to these relationships between the gut and the brain and the nervous system. I think you're going to get a lot out of this podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation and I really enjoyed the book, so I can't wait to share this with you. Let's dive in. Dr. Will Cole, always a pleasure to speak with you. Chris freaking Cresser. I, where, my man crush. I, I, where have you been all my life? It's been too long. <laughs> it has been too long. You know, we met in in person a long time ago now and i don't i feel like yeah. we haven't really seen each other we've just been having a zoom relationship <sighs> since then. this is how, 
<laughs> Along, <laughs> this is how it this is come to catching up on podcasts yeah. this is where we're yeah. at in life but it's very disappointing <laughs> um so i'm excited about your new book gut feelings we share an interest in the gut brain axis and have for many years and i'm so excited that you wrote a book about it so i can't wait to dive in and talk about that but you know first of all why did you write this book so <laughs> As with anything that I write about, it's born out of my day job, my my passion for my patients and running, doing telehealth for as long as I have for the past 13 years. It's just, these are always like, the books are always conversations that I have on a daily, sometimes hourly basis. And it's just like, when you have a conversation enough or conversations, there's like lots of topics that I'm talking about in gut feelings. I just thought, okay when's the time to have this conversation with people other than my patients? Cause I almost see the patients as canaries in the coal mine many times for culture um, because they are going through things. And I'm thinking, okay, if I'm talking to these couple hundred thousands of people over the course of 13 years, they're just the tip of the iceberg of what's going on in society. And I really feel like talking about, both the gut and the feelings, I think are a really important uh, thing to talk about because it's really a, a conversation. The conversation that I'm having in the book is really a conversation about mental health. And I feel like, and not just mental health, but let's say mental health plus people's relationship with food and people's relationship with their body and relationships with themselves. And um, I, I feel like the, 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 destigmatizing of mental health in our culture today, sort of the, the improvements that we've made culturally around normalizing mental health care is a great thing. But in many ways, I feel like it is an incomplete conversation because we sort of relegate mental health as sort of this abstract thing that is separate from physical health. But as we both know, that what the research is showing is that there's a lot of physiological components to mental health problems that we, why aren't we talking about that in a mainstream way? And then obviously the feeling side of gut feelings, really the research of how things like chronic stress and trauma and intergenerational trauma and things like shame, these more nebulous things, how do they impact our physical health, right? So people that maybe don't even see themselves as having a mental health issue, they may have an autoimmune problem or they have... Um, Chronic fatigue, chronic fatigue syndrome, or they have some sort of digestive issue, how these mental, emotional, spiritual things, they've maybe cleaned up their diet, they're taking the right supplements, but they don't realize that these feeling things are actually manifesting on a cellular level. So it's a, it's a both and conversation, not an either or that I think is just really important to talk about. And this is my time to talk about it. Great. Yeah. So many places we could go there. Um, I've been struck in my uh, experience treating patients and also just being a resource for friends and family members and random people that somehow guess my email address and <laughs> right, right to ask me questions and you, you know how it goes i know um, how do people i want to talk about that real fast because i'm always amazed by how did you find my email <laughs> yeah well anyhow don't worry i'm not going to share yours on the podcast but um i i'm struck by the the dual nature of what you said there. On the one hand, we've had sayings in our in our language, like I've got a gut feeling or I have butterflies in my stomach. And, and so in a very like, you know, people with absolutely no medical training, just, just growing up in our culture, I think have some awareness of the gut brain connection and gut feeling connection, even if they never really consciously thought about it or somebody is going out to do public speak, you know, uh, you know, speak publicly for the first time that they, they all of a sudden have cramps in their stomach. And, you know, so most people have had like a pretty direct experience of this. And yet, in my experience as a clinician, people would come in with mental health or behavioral health issues, or I would get calls from family members or friends asking about, you know, their son or daughter, or maybe themselves. And the very last thing on their mind was that it could have something to do with a gut issue or nutrient deficiency or any any number of like physiolog you know very physical physiological issues. It, it was honestly the last thing that they would think about, despite 
this awareness on the one hand that, that there is a connection there. So I've always found that to be pretty interesting. Yeah, uh, it's it's so true. And, you know, I, hopefully conversations like this and my hope is through the book that we can shed more light on this because we're just scratching the surface because I think, okay, we're seeing this clinically um, and we are talking about these things on a podcast, but we're in many ways in our own little bubble of people that are really savvy and erudite about these topics. But then you think of all the family members and loved ones that we have that have no idea. And they just think I was, this is my anxiety or this is my autoimmune condition. And that's sort of it, but they don't really realize that, that in most in the overwhelmingly like majority of cases, we wield a lot of agency over these issues to move the needle in the positive direction in many ways, significantly so. Hmm. I love that you just used the word erudite very <laughs> passing. I, I I really have an appreciation for that. So um let's let's kind of back up because we could assume that most people listening know something about the gut brain axis. If they've been, you know, listening to my podcast for any length of time, I've done probably at least 10 episodes on it over the years. And, but we don't know. Somebody could just be, this could be the first episode they've ever listened to on this podcast. So let's start with what is the gut brain axis? What do we know about it? The connection between the gut and brain and how that influences everything you're talking about in the book. And then maybe we could talk a little bit about depression and how our view of depression has changed given our understanding of the gut-brain axis over the past, let's say, 10, 20 years. Sure. So, I mean, you're, you're such a um, pioneer in, I think, disseminating this information and democratizing this information years and years ago. So um, it, most, like you said, most people, I think your, your listeners are very savvy, but what I want to maybe for people that are newer to this real quickly is your gut and brain are formed from the same fetal tissue. Um, so when babies are growing in their mother's womb, they're in they're grown from that same tissue and they are inextricably linked, woven together for the rest of our life through what's known as the gut brain axis or the connection between the two. And there's many connections there from a nervous system standpoint to a crosstalk between the microbiome of the trillions of bacteria in our gut and our brain. So people maybe have heard this, but majority, 95% of serotonin, our happy neurotransmitter is made in the gut, stored in the gut. About 50% of dopamine is made in the gut, stored in the gut. And that's we know that the bacteria actually influence neurotransmitter expression. So different levels of dysbiosis in the microbiome or imbalances in the microbiome, lower levels of these beneficial colony forming units, like different colonies of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium are associated with anxiety and depression. And some of these studies are actually, especially the ones that I know about um, different neurological autoimmune issues as a causative factor, meaning these bacteria actually are what's triggering these health problems. So we have to understand that these potential autoimmune triggers, these different opportunistic and pathogenic bacteria should be looked at as how is it impacting how our brain works and how our mood works, how, is, how are neurotransmitters expressed in the body, and then how is inflammation levels in the immune systems modulated too. So we know leaky gut syndrome is not news for most people that listen, but these Things passing through the gut that shouldn't be able to pass through the gut are impacting things systemically. And as someone that can have leaky gut syndrome, they can have what's known as leaky brain syndrome or increased blood-brain barrier permeability that we measure on labs in functional medicine that we can see people that have these neuroinflammatory components to it. And it's all linked to the having this sort of gut-centric component to these neuroinflammatory problems. So that's sort of just the beginning of it. But then you look at the autonomic nervous system and the vagus nerve specifically, and how most of these people that have this dysbiosis, some intestinal permeability, some systemic inflammation, they have autonomic nervous system dysfunction and they're, and they're they have poor vagal tone and this vagus nerve is this it's the lar lar largest cranial nerve, and it's responsible for regulating the parasympathetic aspect of our nervous system, the resting, digesting aspect of our nervous system. And their sympathetic aspect of the nervous system, that fight or flight, stressed, inflamed aspect of the nervous system, of which is important too. Both are important. The problem is one is just so overactive all the time. And these people, I mean, that's 
to varying degrees, the vast majority of human society. I was going to say, right by, by these me people, you mean yeah. everyone. <laughs> yeah, you mean all of us on a spectrum. Yeah, yeah for sure. Almost everybody. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that's the state of affairs right now. And, and you really can't have a conversation around mental health issues, just like you can't have a conversation around autoimmunity without looking at the sort of gut feeling conversation that I think is important here. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Let's talk a little bit about inflammation because, you know, I've talked about and written in the past about the inflammatory cytokine model of depression, which, you know, you've talked and written about a lot as well. And, and the research is really pointing in this direction where, um, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I think it, we, we both agree that we can't be too reductionistic about the cause of depression because it's multifactorial and there are multiple mm -hmm. causes and that will vary from person to person. But I think it's pretty clear by now, and I'm, I'm actually um, in, a, in a month or two going to have Dr. Joanna Moncrieff on the, on the show, which I'm really excited about because she's really been instrumental in debunking this myth that depression is caused by a deficiency of serotonin or a chemical imbalance in the brain. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of the research is pointing to now is that it's caused by inflammation, and particularly inflammation yeah. that starts in the gut and travels through the, the bloodstream. And I know you talk about this in the book. So... Mm -hmm. How does inflammation impact our brain and our mood, not just in terms of depression, but other mental and behavioral uh, disorders that are, mm -hmm. you know, ADHD, uh, all, autism spectrum disorders, anxiety, mm -hmm. obsessive compulsive disorder, pr pretty much every mental and behavioral condition that we know of. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, it's we were talking about it over 10 years ago in, in, in our space, but it's just scratching. It's just now hitting sort of the mainstream and still we have so far. To I, go. Do, I do want to point out that when we were talking about it 10 years ago, we got a lot of eye rolls and, and a lot 100%. of in, in, incredulous stares. And it's, and, and now it's like a hot topic in the yeah. scientific literature. So I'm just going to pat myself on the back <laughs> and then pat you on the back over there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, look, we weren't just thinking this up. It wasn't some random woo-woo thing that we thought this is researchers were talking about this. We were just saying, look at what these researchers are talking about. We were just were the ones publicly talking about it. Yeah. I remember getting like crazy troll stuff early on in social media, even at the telehealth clinic, we would get phone calls and would say, how dare you mislead people for saying inflammation struck. But I'm like, yeah. all right, then take it up with the researcher because I'm just talking about the research. And um, yeah, the cytokine model of cognitive function. How do, does inflammation or cytokines, how is it impacting how our brain works? How is inflammation impacting mental health? So as you said, it's multifaceted. Every case is going to be different as far as the configuration of the pieces of their puzzle. Like, is it situational solely? Is it is the situational driving inflammation or is it the other way around? And so that's sort of the gut feeling upstream downstream conversation i'm having in the book for some people it's a lot it's the feeling stuff that's driving the inflammation for some people's the gut things the physiological things that are driving the inflammation inflammation's the commonality right and my job your job well our job in functional medicine is saying what's driving the inflammation and uh there's there's something dysregulating the, the immune system that's causing that well it's impacting how the brain's functioning it's impacting the way that neurotransmitters are expressed it's impacting how certain parts of the brain are firing or not firing enough and it's causing a cascade of problems in, in the body. And how many cases can we, you and I both think of over the years where they thought that was just them, right? There was just their chemical imbalance. It was just their serotonin deficiency. And it was a just genetic many times is what you would hear. You know, it runs in my family and there's nothing I can do with it. And of course there's genetic components to these things, but why is that gene being expressed in that way? And oftentimes inflammation is the thing that's really dysregulating the way that the body's expressing itself on a methylation side of things or whatever you're talking about. Um, so it is a major facet of my work to look at the inflammation, see how it's impacting the brain and other parts of the body, and then ultimately uncover for the individual what is contributing, what are the pieces to the puzzle, what's driving up and triggering that inflammation. And the gut and the feeling side of it, meaning the physiological and the psychological are both things it's normally a both and 
thing. You know, it's that's one of the reasons why at an intake for a patient, we ask a lot of questions about their childhood and a lot of questions about was there sexual abuse in your childhood? Was there physical abuse? Was there alcohol uh, abuse in the home growing up? Was there was any other sort of trauma in their life? That the, we know from the studies again that the higher A score that there is, they're more likely to have autoimmune issues triggered later on in life. And and conversely, we know that the physiological stuff, like we mentioned with with intestinal permeability and dysbiosis, and people that have these other uh, stealth infections like mold toxicity or also can impact things like anxiety and depression. So again, to repeat myself, it has to be a both and conversation, but inflammation is a commonality, right? It's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Let's linger on this for a second, because I, there's a lot of guilt and shame uh, surrounding depression and other mental health disorders. I know you talk a lot about this in the book, um, and you've even coined a term shame inflammation, shame inflammation, shame inflammation, shame inflammation is how I, I say like, it. I think shame inflammation rolls off the tongue yeah. a little bit better, but, um, there's, I think a double-edged sword here. Um, I, those angry phone calls that you got to the clinic, I think were part of like people had been told for a long time, this is a disease in my brain, this is genetic. It's it's an imbalance of chemicals. There's nothing I can do about it except for take this drug that is supposed to adjust the chemicals. And in a way, that was really liberating for people. It, it took away some of the shame that they might have felt otherwise for feeling depressed because it's like, hey, I just have this chemical imbalance in my brain and it, it's a medical disorder. I'll take the drug and it will make that better and I'll get on with my life. And then if, if, if someone comes along and says, well, actually, the research doesn't support that that's the cause of depression, but then there was no alternative offered. It was like right back into the shame pit of like, oh, so you're telling me this is my fault and it's all my fault that I'm depressed. No, 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 <laughs> that's not at all what we're saying. We're saying that there may be other causes that are driving it and we should probably figure out what those are. And in fact, you know, all, many of those causes are things that you can influence. They're not your fault. You know, it's not your fault that you weren't breastfed when you were an infant, that that actually could have affected the development of your gut microbiota. And, and it's probably not your fault that you ate junk food growing up as a kid if that's what your parents, you know, fed you and they gave you antibiotics for acne. And, you know, everyone's trying to do their, their best generally, right? So, but it, to me, it's, it is actually empowering and liberating when people learn that depression and other mental health disorders do have, phys, you know, can at least have physiological roots that can be identified through testing and then addressed because then it gives them something to do, you know, some right. actions to take. hundred percent. No, it's quite the opposite. I mean, people feel judged or they feel um, indicted or we're shaming them. It's quite, like you said, it's quite the opposite. It's actually most of the stuff, uh, a large part of it, it things that were done to you uh, or things that you had no control over because it happened early on in your life or you didn't know what was happening as an adult. Um, so it's, it's like, I always tell my patients, you have to know what you're dealing with to do something about it. And this is really a message of empowerment, of self-advocacy, of agency over your health, not of shame and sort of, uh, pointing the finger at all. It's okay. Like you said, here's a baseline. Now let's do something about it. And look for some, we're not, you and I, we're not anti-medication. If that's a tool within your toolbox, wonderful. What I'm talking about, what you and I see so often over the years, is the people that are doing everything their doctor is telling them to do, and they're still in the in the in the dark space. They're still struggling. There's still there's so much medical gaslighting going on, and these people are largely very compliant people that are doing things their traditional doctors telling them to do. So at that point, if they're taking every medication their doctors telling them to do, or have tried it. And they're still where they where they're still in a bad place. What are those people supposed to do? 
and these sort of treatment resistant people, quote unquote, what are they supposed to do? And that's a, a whole huge percentage of people fall under that category where maybe they had a honeymoon period with the medication, but it's really not. Maybe it takes the edge off. I hear that a lot. Or the people that it doesn't really do anything for them or it made them worse. They had some side effects from the medication. What are they supposed to do? That's who we're talking about. And those are the people that we need to do better for as a society. And that's, I see these people, but the reality is it's a big chunk of our population. And um, yeah, that's where I feel like these areas that maybe they don't want to go to in a more of a conventional conversation, I really feel it's important to deal with the gaping wound we have in the form of both autoimmune issues and mental health issues. If you've listened to the show for a while, you know that I'm a super active guy. Depending on the time of year, I'm either skiing, mountain biking, hiking, backpacking, surfing, or lifting weights on most days of the week. I also live in a really dry climate at high elevation. For these reasons, I pay a lot of attention to hydration. I've learned the hard way what happens when I get dehydrated, and I know how important hydration is to overall health. But hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. This is where Element comes in. It's a combination of electrolytes like sodium, potassium, and magnesium in easy-to-use individual packets that you just add right to your water bottle. And unlike most electrolyte products on the market, Element is free of sugar and artificial junk. I drink Element every day, and it's made a huge difference in how I feel. Even with my training and profession, I don't think I realized how often I was dehydrated before I made Element part of my daily routine. If you'd like to try it, the folks at Element have an exclusive offer for my podcast listeners. You can get a free sample pack with one of each of the eight flavors Element sells when you purchase any Element product. This is perfect for anyone who wants to try all of the flavors or who wants to introduce a friend to Element. Just go to cresser.co slash element, that's L-M-N-T, to place an order and take advantage of this offer. Vitamin C is a critical nutrient for immune function and antioxidant protection. Yet most people don't get enough in their diet, and most vitamin C supplements contain synthetic forms, GMO, sugar, or allergens like soy or corn. This is why I recommend whole food forms of vitamin C, which contain the full spectrum of vitamin C activity without GMOs or other junk. And my favorite whole food vitamin C product is Essential C from Paleo Valley. It's made with three of the most potent vitamin C-rich superfoods on the planet, one of which is 120 times more potent than an orange. Nothing synthetic, no weird questionable ingredients, just food. Right now they're offering my community an exclusive 15% off discount. Just go to paleovalley.com slash chris and use the code CRESSER15 to get 15% off. I've been writing and speaking about the harms of industrial seed oils for years. They're an enormous problem. They've been linked to widespread health and environmental issues, and yet they're in almost everything we eat. Zero Acre is here to change that. Their cultured oil is an all-purpose cooking oil with over 90% heart-healthy and heat-stable monounsaturated fats. In fact, it has more monounsaturated fat than even olive and avocado oil, and it has a much higher smoke point and a clean, neutral taste, which makes it perfect for everything from cooking and baking to salad dressings. I use it to cook my eggs in the morning, uh, ground beef, uh, pretty much anything that I'm going to cook that might have a higher smoke point and that I don't want the oil to have an impact on the taste of the food. It's become one of my favorite cooking oils. And since it's made by fermentation, it has a 10 times smaller environmental footprint than other vegetable oils. I'm a huge fan of this product. I think you'll love it as well. And Zero Acre is offering our listeners free shipping on their first order. So go to zeroacre.com slash Chris or use the code Chris at checkout to claim this deal. That's Z-E-R-O-A-C-R-E dot com slash Chris. So let's talk a little bit about stress and the, and how stress impacts the autonomic nervous system and the gut, which is, of course, the, an extension or part of the nervous system, depending on how you look at it. Um, because as, as you've we've both said, you know, stress is inescapable for most of us and how it impacts us, how much of it we experience, how we process it, that will vary from person to person. 
But for the vast majority of us living in the modern industrialized world, it's just a, f a fact of life to some extent or, or another. Mm -hmm. So first, you know, let's just kind of review a little bit about how that does impact the gut and, and then our mental health. And then let's talk about some of the strategies you explore in your book, some of the somatic practices, forest bathing, food peace and metaphysical meals. Uh, I love all that. So, and I think it, people will, um, you know, it's, it's a great uh, way for people to get a sense of even small, how small changes like, or seemingly small changes that collectively when you add them together can make a big impact. Thanks. Yeah. So in, in the book, the, I really boil down to what are the top tools within the toolbox that, what have I seen be needle movers for my patients um, on both a gut and a feelings part of it? So there's a, there's a 21 day protocol in the book. And as I say clearly in the book, look, I am a clinician. I know there's nothing, you're not going to be dealing with healing 100% intergenerational trauma in 21 days. But what I wanted to show them is saying, look, every day, like you said, there's something I can do to nourish both my gut and my feelings. There's something I could do, do every day to start to get my head a little bit more above that proverbial water. And the more you get your head above that proverbial water, the more you're going to have more uh, more resilience and more bandwidth to do more good things that love you back and nourish you and continue your healing journey. So the question about stress, we we know stress isn't good for our health because somatically we know this, intuitively we know this, but I think people are just so common, like they're so just because something's common doesn't make it normal. And the human body is just not used to this sort of low grade or chronic stressing all the time. And But we all have different resilience capacities, right? We all have other variables. Some people can handle a certain level of threat, stress every day. And they're more, it's not the best, most ideal thing for the human body, but they're going to be, they're not noticing anything massively expressing and showing up in their health. But so that's sort of the bucket analogy that, I talk to my patients about some people have big buckets, some people have smaller buckets, and that's their sort of genetic tolerance for stressors. It also depends what else you're putting in the bucket too. That's exactly. not right. Right. So like if um, you get exposed to an infection and that's draining your bucket, then all of a sudden stress that you were able to tolerate before, which is no problem for you becomes a problem. So there's, there's lots that goes in, in and out of that bucket. 100%. And that's why many people will say, Oh, like, I was fine. And then I had this viral infection. And it like set off the edge. Well, was the virus the only thing that in that bucket? Probably not. Um, and obviously, the last few years, even with the, the COVID for some people, it triggered a whole host of different autoimmune issues. Was it just COVID? Probably not. There's a whole host of things going on here. And it's sort of dysregulated and already very uh, fragile, not so resilient system in, in a lot of cases I've seen actually. So the point is, like you said, it's multifactorial and it's a confluence of factors that need to be addressed. But chronic stress is one of those things that, that contributes to that bucket, uh, of overflow. If you're taking it from that tipping point analogy of just, uh, what's my ability to handle stressors. And when we look at different methylation gene variants or different HLA gene variants, our patients tend to have those smaller bu buckets, so to speak, and they tend to overflow a little bit easier, they're a little bit more sensitive or having reactions, hypervigilant responses. We can't change our buckets, but we can change what we put in it. And both the physiological and psychological, the gut and the feelings both can, can contribute to that bucket tipping point, that bucket overflow. So chronic stress is part of it. And what these, some of these action items that I have are like, what's the source of your stressor? For many patients that I talked to over the years, it's their job, it's family dynamics, uh, it's stressing about their health, like they're they don't feel well and that's stressful, or trying to figure figure out answers about their health that is stressful. Um, so really implementing tools there to create healthy boundaries. Sometimes it's like if it's around job or Dr. Google and like incessantly Googling things that stress them out and cause obsession. It's like, you need healthy boundaries with your phone. Like it's like you, you need like to, to block yourself from falling in down that rabbit hole of creating more shame and obsession 
around your health or around whatever you're talking about, or it's your emails at night and it's, you never turn off and you're constantly looking in that blue light and contributing to that sympathetic overactivation. So there's a lot of practices around stress that I talk about in the book for people to create acts of stillness is how I describe it in the book. How do you create acts of stillness to be, why are we doing this? Supportive of the parasympathetic because that's going to help, help inflammation to calm down cortisol to come down because what's cortisol it's an endogenous immunosuppressant so it's trying your body's saying i need to bring down that inflammation in the form of cortisol and it's just an unsustainable sympathetic situation because at the end of the time and the day it's like your body's gonna break uh, proverbially right it's gonna break in the form of health symptoms and it's gonna con continue to accumulate until you deal with the whispers and then the shouts and then the screams that your body's trying to say, this is unsustainable for me. Um, so yeah, that's just scratching the surface around the topic of chronic stress. But chronic stress, these are big topics, right? When you're talking about stress and trauma and shame, it is nebulous in the way that it's prescriptive for me to say, well, these foods are the most likely to mess up your gut, have less of those you know, increase these foods that love you back. They're going to help to support your gut health. And we talk about it in the book, but what are these bigger topics that I wanted to, to tackle in the book that you can't really just say, don't stress or don't have shame or don't have trauma. <laughs> then they you stress can, about not stressing. It, but you it's not going to get very far. Right? Oh, right. Uh, so I really wanted to talk about like, what does the science say around dealing with these bigger topics, these feeling topics. And that's where I really, I think it's an important part of the conversation. Yeah. No, I, I, um, I want to spend a little time here because, and I'm curious about your experience, but in my experience as a clinician, you know, my patients, and I think it's probably true for you, are pretty motivated generally. They're not, you know, it's not their first rodeo. <laughs> They've usually seen a bunch of other clinicians and, they've got complex chronic health problems that are really interfering with their life and they want to do something about it and get better. And so if I tell them to follow a certain diet, they'll generally follow that certain diet. If I tell them to take some supplements, they'll typically take those supplements. If I tell them to do some lab tests, they'll typically do those lab tests. If I make suggestions to manage their stress, well, maybe not. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's uh, much more of an uphill battle, and mm -hmm. people tend to struggle with that a lot more. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Number one, you can start a new diet and, and take new supplements and take lab tests without really changing much about the, your life and how you relate to yourself, how you relate to other people, how you process you know, the world around you, you know, you don't need to change any of that to do a new diet and take supplements, but managing your stress really does require that because you, let's say you've set some time aside to go do 10 minutes of meditation or to even just lie down and rest. If you've got a, a story that your, your self-worth is equal to what you accomplish in the world, then you're probably not going to set that time aside to rest and you're going to keep working <laughs> or, you know, yeah. you're going to, you're going to like put energy into something else that feels more productive. And so mm -hmm. it's hard. Like th these are big changes that we're asking of people. And yet often in my experience for those kinds of people who are doing everything else, right, that's going to be the biggest return on investment. If, even using that term is funny in this context, but <laughs> like, that's going to move the needle, as you said earlier, more than like that final five or 10% of diet optimization or, you know, that final tweak of their supplement routine, yeah. just sitting on the cushion for 10 minutes or laying down, and relaxing for 10 minutes would have a bigger impact, but it's the hardest thing for people to do often. Yeah, totally. Especially the people that are naturally, maybe you could say naturally or what came first, the chicken or the egg, but they are more of that type A personality, but those they those people also have the sympathetic tone, uh, this hyperactivation of the sympathetic thing where any acts of stillness there's an aversion to it typically. And it's very uncomfortable to go there because there's sort of, it, the stillness can be scary for people that are, there's constant mind chatter going on and their nervous system's used to going at a certain uh, pace. And 
there there can be a lot of ruminating thoughts and a lot of incessant thoughts that any quieting of that that sort of distraction that they're used to sort of numbing themselves with with the distraction of going and educating and going and reading more, going to listen to another podcast or, you know, doing the next thing or scrolling FOMO inducing content on social media. It's anything that's going to going to go inwards is can be very scary. But, you know, those dark corners are typically where the healing resides. And that's I wanted to go into the dark corners that I see are the potential linchpins for people. It's like, what are the roadblocks that I see these complex cases where are they at? Um, and you know, they, these these you mentioned these meta the, the term metaphysical meals is what I called it in the book because there's like the physical meals or the gut and the feelings. The gut side is the food, like the nourishing. We talk I talk about gaps protocol, gut and psych, psychology syndrome, and the research around that. And the feeling side of it, or is like how are we? you know, what's the breakfast, lunch, and dinner look like on that side of things? And almost like use these acts of stillness as these these metaphysical meals and treat them as such. Because our patient base, oftentimes, like you said, super compliant with the food protocol, super compliant with the supplement and the biohacking and all the things that you need to do. But on the feeling side, I find that if you tell them, okay, if you treat this like a meal or treat this like going to the gym and being consistent, just as consistent with this and as just as much as a practice as the feet gut stuff, how that's where you're going to start to flex that mindfulness muscle and gain that parasympathetic resilience that I want. Um, and it could be a game changer. Like I think that you and I both probably could think of countless cases when the, we have the patients, the clients that do deal with both sides of that coin, they're the quickest to heal and the quickest to move past that plateau. So I just know that there's such a need for this because there's just a sea of people that are, again, there's so much medical gaslighting around these topics and delegitimization and in some ways, because this vastly affects women versus men, a systemic delegitimization around these topics and so important. Absolutely. So let's talk about some of the small changes uh, that people can make, because for, for me, and I, I think you agree, that's that's important. We just talked about how it's often really difficult for people to make these kinds of changes. And in my experience, you know, if you tell us just from a straight up understanding of behavior change, like if you start out and say, oh, I want to begin a meditation practice, I'm going to I'm going to start meditating an hour a day every day. <laughs> That's you know, there's like 1% of people that are going to be able to, to, to make that work. But the good news is that it is really true that uh, big changes are often the result of a series of small changes. And I found that to be particularly the case with stress management and, and these kinds of things that we're talking about. So what are the mm-hmm. things in, in your experience that move the needle that you tend to prescribe, you know, for, for your patients um, that people, most people can incorporate into their life, no matter what is going on, how busy they are, um, that will actually make a subjective difference for them. Yeah. And you can, I mean, there's every day, again, there's a 21 day protocol. There's four, there's a gut action item and a feeling action item on every day. So it's 42 total practices that I just sort of compiled what are the most effective that I've seen in my telehealth clinic. But I mean, on one of the days, there's the self-compassion practice. And these are not meant to, you could do one a day and experiment with it. But my hope at the end of the 21 days, that you will see the ones that resonate with you the most, and you'll stay consistent with, and they will be just sustainable tools within your toolbox because these things are going to take time to untangle and time to calm down depending on how severe your case is um, whether it's a mental health issue or an autoimmune issue um, so self-compassion is one that comes to mind when the research um, around I think they did public speaking and math because like this are two stressful things for people <laughs> and people <laughs> like that that people that had the higher the highest self-compassion score had the lowest inflammation levels and self-compassion such a maybe you know ambiguous term but like people that had the most grace and the most lightness for themselves the most um inner self-compassion for themselves 
tend to be the most resilient and have the lowest inflammation levels. So that doesn't come naturally for a lot of people. A lot of people, there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of obsession. There's a lot of dread. There's a lot of overwhelm about these things. So I, I give several self-compassion practices that the journals that have been studied. One is just talking to yourself like you would a friend, like if you had a tough day at work, or if you had, um, you know, just had whatever, a, ba a bad day, and you are great at giving advice, but you're not good at taking it yourself. Well, one way to really start to cultivate and flex that self-compassion muscle is to sort of do this inner dialogue, inner talk to yourself and sort of make friends with yourself. Because I find a lot of our, our patients over the years, there is this sort of um, inner resistance and a lot of shame and negativity around their body, around foods, around uh, wellness, all of this stuff. So self-compassion practice is really important. And then I talk about in the book, and I always think about sort of the esoteric level of what's going on in the form of autoimmunity, right? The autoimmunity, we know on a physiological level, level there's molecular mimicry going on, the, the, the case of mistaken, mistaken identity. But then you think of how the researchers even refer to it as the immune system losing recognition of self. And I think, okay, that phrase hits home more than just a physical level for many people, of people losing recognition of self. And you think of the connection there, what came first? And it's a bit of both, right? It's like when your body's flared up, you lose recognition of self because you don't know what to believe anymore and you don't know what's working for you and what's not. And like food becomes your enemy and your body is literally warring against itself. But we know the research about stress and trauma. We know the research around shame and how those things can actually trigger these problems too. So um, self-compassion is huge to gain recognition of self for yourself again. Yeah, I love that. I'm a big fan of Kristen Neff's work on self-compassion. And actually one of my teachers in the Zen tradition, Sherry Huber, is, is a big proponent of this. And she, one of her, my favorite sayings of, of hers, which is similar to what you said in the beginning of this portion of the conversation was, if we had a friend that treated us like we treat ourselves, we would have gotten rid of that friend a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so it's true. So, it's so true. So yeah, I, I, sometimes it helps to think about how you would respond to a friend or how you respond to your child whom you love unconditionally, you know, and, and, and then, and often that dialogue, the words, the tone of voice, everything is so different than the way that we tend to talk to ourselves or that tape that's often running yeah. in our heads. And we have trillions of cells that are listening to every yeah. thought, every word. Um, so it's huge. And that's, again, big things to unpack because those neural pathways can be deep. And we sort of so trained to be in those ruminating negative thought cycles, hamster wheels. So these practices take time to sort of reprogram your nervous system, your limbic system, but it's well worth it with time and consistency. Absolutely. And I think it's always important to point out too, as you do, that, you know, different strokes for different folks. Like for some people, the starting point may not be sitting on a meditation cushion and staring at the wall, like in a you know formal rigid Zen practice. That that just might be too big of an ask for someone who has a super active mind and is hyper stimulated and just needs to actually take things down a couple of notches. Maybe for that person, forest bathing is a better option or a yoga, you know, restorative yoga practice or Tai Chi, some kind of, uh, or Qigong, like a movement meditation. So talk about some of the other options, you know, uh, for creating those moments of stillness uh, that you refer to. Yeah, it's, it's such a good point. You know, and I think if someone has their entry point is going to, everybody's entry point is going to be different. And even on, on a gut and a feeling side, I'm sure you've seen this too. It's like some people, they will, it almost, I want to meet them where they're at. And that's sort of the science and art of what we do is sometimes the physical stuff, like dealing with the, the gaps protocol and dealing with the gut brain access through nutrition and soups and stews and nourishing things that are supplements to 
calm neuroinflammation. That's going to get their head above water enough to be less rattled and overwhelmed by the feeling stuff. Like once you get their inflammation levels down from a physiological side, they can then move past that plateau by then I'm ready now to deal with the feeling stuff. I can actually meditate now because my nervous system is less dysregulated. And then for some people, the food stuff's completely overwhelming and you really just need to like get out in nature. Like the research around Shinrin Yoku or um, forest bathing, the research in Japan and South Korea of how to use nature as a medicine, using nature as a meditation and taking nature in with all of your senses. And both just from a visual standpoint, but also the actual essential oils that come in from the, from nature itself has a therapeutic benefit shown to help modulate the immune system in a positive way and improve mood in a positive way. Um, so it's it's multifactorial as far as what's the the this that the sensorial benefit I guess of around forest bathing. Um, so yeah, it's 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 definitely. Uh, different for different people, but all of these practices are helpful. And I would say too, <laughs> that you hear sometimes like people will say, well, meditation's not for me. And those are typically the people that need it the most, right? They are the people that are so much in that fight or flight state. And then they think, like you said, like it's just that classic one type of meditation, but all of these practices, all these metaphysical meals that I'm talking about can be a meditation. So forest bathing is a meditation, but it's just different than what you're thinking. But even the more, if you're saying the classic breathwork meditations or mindfulness meditation or present moment meditation or a mantra, those can be uncomfortable. And sometimes people need to start off low and slow. But there's a reason why it's called a practice is because it doesn't necessarily come natural to any of us. There's a monkey mind in all of us. So it's okay to not be good at things. And that's a lot of these type A hypervigilant people. It's like they're not good at something. They just want to like not go to it because it's supporting an area of their nervous system that is weak. Uh, and yeah. that's why they need to be doing it. <laughs> it's yeah. like going to the gym once and saying the gym didn't work for me because yeah, you tried meditation. It's, once. it's like, uh, God, I, I tried to bench press 300 pounds, but I couldn't even do <laughs> one rep. So I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> you know, it's very similar, yeah. actually. And, and, you know, this is why, yeah, I am a proponent in general of apps like Headspace and Calm and, you know, I think for getting started. But I'm, when I look back on my history with meditation, I started when I was 17. My dad actually introduced me to it because he had had a sort of nervous breakdown at that point in his life. And his doctor, to his doctor's credit, like this was early days. This was not, you know, meditation was not the household term that it is now. His doctor said, you're going to you're gonna die if you don't do something to get your stress under control and, and recommended a meditation teacher Um you know, about a half hour from where we grew up. And, and so my dad asked me if I wanted to go and I was like, well, sure, <laughs> why not? And so I started with a teacher and then I, you know, when I became a, uh, I got involved with Zen practice, as some people may know, Zen traditionally is a, has a formal student teacher relationship. And I'm not saying that everybody you know, that you have to have a teacher to learn meditation. But one of the things that can be helpful in having a teacher is that they can disabuse you of some of these misunderstandings about what meditation is supposed to be like. And one of those, like you said, Will, is like, I'm supposed to sit down and just have a completely clear mind for the next half hour with no thoughts. That happens to exactly nobody. Like even the most seasoned <laughs> You know, my, my teachers who'd been meditating for 30, 40 years, who in turn had teachers who were famous Zen practitioners, you know, they're sitting down and just thoughts are just going through their mind the whole entire time they're sitting. Mm -hmm. They might have moments, you know, we and, and any seasoned meditator will have moments of, of relative calm and, you know, the thought process slowing down. But the real difference is how we're relating to those thoughts mm -hmm. as they're yeah. passing through the mind. And that's something that anybody can learn to do is to shift that relationship to what's happening in the mind and, and mm -hmm. cultivate that witness 
perspective where yeah. we're not just like a pinball on the machine sort <laughs> of bouncing around, you know, yeah. hooking, grabbing onto one thought and hanging onto that, like as a bumper of the car flying by and then the next car comes by and we reach out and hang onto that bumper and get dragged through the road. So yeah, I love that you brought that in because that is, I think, the number one misconception about meditation is that if you're having thoughts, you're not doing it right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, no, it's like you said, it's, well, how can we be, create that witness? How can we realize we're not our thoughts and emotions, but this is our observing presence of them, as Eckhart Tolle says. So I, I think that that is just paramount. And I find, again, to repeat myself, clinically, the patients that I see most consistently, not the best at it, the most consistent with it, are the ones that tend to modulate their immune system, i.e. lower inflammation levels, and increase that that vagal tone that we need so much better, uh, so much more uh, unimpededly over time, so much more effortlessly, um, because they're doing this both and approach, this gut and feeling approach that I think is just paramount. And that, again, the entry point can be different for different people, um, but these are all practice. I talk about different somatic practices in the book too, which yoga is somatic, somatic practice. And um, you mentioned these movement medicines, but just sort of some people, that is a great entry point of like uh, yoga or Tai Chi or drumming, or I, I give a tapping practice in the book to sort of metabolize that trauma or metabolize that stress in that way as well. Yeah, and I, it's great to have these different options in your, in your toolkit, so to speak, for me. I have a pretty consistent sitting meditation practice because I've just done that for 30 years. And it's like, in some way, like brushing my teeth. There's nothing special mm -hmm. about it. And I mean, it's incredibly special in one way of looking at it. On the other hand, it's, it's nothing special. It's just yeah. part of my routine. But then, you know, there are times where like, I'm feeling like a lot of anxiety or stress in my body. And I feel like I just need to move. And mm -hmm. in that situation, I might do some Tai Chi or yoga or even dance or get outside and take a walk in, in you know, in, in the fresh mm -hmm. air. It's, it's great to be, to cultivate a familiarity with your own internal compass and then, you know, have different options to go to depending on what's happening. Yeah, exactly. And, and intuitively know, like the, and it's not a failure, right? If you go to something else and pivot and, um, you know, it's, it's the way that I verbalize it to my patients that I wrote about it in the book is making exactly what you said, making the mundane a meditation, making your life a meditation. So it's not this big thing. Sometimes there is big meditation classes where it's a formal thing, right? Where you're learning the sort of deeper science and art of, of these ancient traditions that have a lot of exciting science about it that I talk about, but sometimes it's making tea and like the, the rich tradition of just tea making and using that as a present moment awareness of grounding yourself. It could be anything that you do. Like for me, I consult patients online all day long. So how am I making that a meditation? How am I really like making the person I'm talking to the only person that's there and having their, their presence even virtually be an anchor for me in the present moment. Like that's nothing fancy. That's just being rooted in the present moment and using the present moment as an anchor for us. So yeah, it's just not some esoteric, it doesn't have to be some deep esoteric unattainable thing. It's just in, in many ways, in my opinion, just how to live life in a sane way <laughs> because the madness of the human mind sometimes can just be so dysfunctional how can we live life in a more sane way and i think that these meditation practices are a way to do that absolutely love the book gut feelings it'll be out i think by the time this this podcast goes live uh will where can people learn more about the book and follow the rest of your work Thanks, my friend. DrWillCole.com, uh, D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. So we have all the links to the books there. Um, you can buy Gut Feelings on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, all the, you know, and support your independent bookstore as we all know if, they're, if you have one locally. Um, but there's indie books, right, as well. And we have a lot of pre-order stuff going on around the release of Gut Feelings. We're, we have a, a three-week mastermind with me and a few psychiatrist uh, colleagues of mine around this topic. And um, 
you, we, I have, I adapted a, this is not in the book, but it's at drgoolcool.com. I adapted a, a um, questionnaire that I, we have ask patients. I turned, I kind of adapted it for online in a quiz because people like quizzes. So for people to see what's a functional medicine perspective on this sort of microbiome mind bi-directional relationship and kind of measuring your shame inflammation, if you will, and seeing how your gut feeling connection are. So we're kind of, I brought some ACE aspects like the adverse child experience aspects and some other questions that I ask patients for people to kind of see and maybe have an aha moment of like, oh, I thought I was all right here, but like, I have a lot of ish to deal with <laughs> and you have to know what you're dealing with to do something about it. So it's all positive. Fantastic. I love the book. Highly recommend it. Uh, love your work well and loved this conversation. And uh, thanks for taking the time to join us. And thanks everybody for listening. Uh, send your questions, chriscresser.com slash podcast question. We'll see you next time. When I find a company that I love and I think you'll love, I do my best to support it and help it grow. Sometimes that means just getting the word out through my podcast, emails, and social media channels. And other times that means investing in the company or joining their advisory board. If you're hearing this message, it means that I'm either an investor or advisory board member of a company that is mentioned in this podcast episode. I only invest in or advise companies with a mission and products that I truly believe in. And I hope you benefit from learning more about them and how their products can improve your life. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.